Welcome to Where Others Won't, episode 72. If you're just finding the show, I hope you'll check out previous episodes, which include guests like neuroscientist Dr. Amy Cruz, self-awareness expert Dr. Tasha Urich, and former Richmond Tigers Best and Fairest winner Daniel Jackson. My guest on this episode is one of the world's most sought-after psychologists in the sporting world, Dr. Pippa Grange. Pippa is a performance psychologist, culture coach, and the author of the best-selling book, Fear Less, How to Win at Life Without Losing Yourself. She's perhaps best known for her work as head of people and team development at the FA, where she worked closely with England's men's team in the lead up to the 2018 World Cup. I hope you enjoy my conversation about fear in coaching with Pippa Grange. Pippa Grange, finally someone to talk AFL footy with me. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> this is the only reason that I wanted to, to bring you on. Everyone else wants to talk to you about the England men's football team, but I want oh, to talk about thank footy. God. Thank God. I've been looking forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I actually want to start with a, a bit of a thank you. And, you know, having read your work, and I would like to think that I'm reasonably widely read in our area. Um, and I can't really think of another book that has touched on the topic of social conditioning and how it impacts behaviour and behaviour change, and particularly in young men uh, and particularly in sport, which is kind of our realm. Mm. And it's such an important factor that I think gets overlooked. And then in thinking about you, you know, you also call yourself a, a culture coach rather than a performance psychologist, which is that same line of thinking in that we need to address the outside as well as the inside. So it's kind of the same thing in a different sphere. Mm-hmm. What is it about your experience that has guided that and, and reinforced that perspective? Yeah, great question. I, I think that, you know, I, st- I started my career doing more of the sort of one-on-one stuff. Um, and even at my time in the AFL, you know, uh, AFLPA, I should say, my sort of early days, you know, the first work was one-on-one with athletes. But then as you listen to those stories in the armchairs over many years, you realize that all behavior makes sense in context, mm-hmm. right? And, and, you know, the things that uh, just... Uh, so easily um, simplified and misconstrued into some kind of headline or some sort of singular statement. If you if you unpack the story a little bit, there's always a massive piece of both relationships and environment that play into the way people show up and the way people behave. And I, I guess over years, I was at the PA for about five years, and I kind of got to the stage where I felt like I wanted to work on the culture or the environment as well as the individual like it's not an either or proposition you kind of got to do both I I think to to really get it right but if you're just working on the individual 
they might feel better temporarily, but you're doing nothing to move the dial um, uh, in changing the culture, changing the way that things happen. And I think also you leave all of the responsibility with that one individual to cope, to manage, to deal, you know, and we're not challenging sport enough on how it behaves, how we collectively behave within sport um, when it comes to good culture, whether that's on or off pitch, uh, field, you know, poolside, whatever we're talking about. So I just kind of, the story that I was witnessing again and again was always, always a story of context. So I didn't see how I could not work on the culture as well as the individual. Mm. It seems like an extraordinary oversight for me. And I've spoken about this at length in that, you know, if we think about just kind of general therapy, so let's talk about like alcohol abuse, you, you would clearly work on the individual and, and what they have dealt with and their trauma. But one of the stock standard things that we also deal with is the environment. So including their physical environment, but just their, their general overall uh, kind of sphere of well-being around them. And then, yeah, in sport, we, we do tend to put that burden on the individual. And, and I think maybe even now as we go into this brain training you know, self-awareness kind of world that we're, we're slipping into now, more and more of that burden is being placed on just individuals. It's like, yep. just you do the work. We won't fix the social environment. You do the work and everything will be better. Yeah. I think that's a smoke screen personally. Like that, even the idea of self, right? There's, there, there is no you really in a psychological sense without the community and the relationships that you inhabit you know, that you are not in any way brought to life or animated if you're not in your environment, you know. And, and so it's just, I think it's just passing the buck. I think it's just uh, making it um, a responsibility of the individual without really thinking about what kind of futures we build, what kind of communities we build and how we, be how we behave collectively. It also means that, you know, something like psychology or performance psychology gets to prove itself as a science in the way that physiology or biomechanics or medicine can do. Um, and I think that's been part of the battle in sport that, you know, we've been, it's had a bit of an identity crisis for quite a long time, sports psych, and, you know, needing to be able to demonstrate things like techniques or ways of working that felt empirically valid rather than saying, hey, this is, this is as much art as science and we, you know, you've got to step back and look at macro as well as individual. It's much harder, right, to do that. <laughs> it's actually much harder, but that's where the that's where the good stuff is. So I, I think, you know, I do see it as a smoke screen. I'm not saying it's invalid to work with the individual. That's very, very valuable as it is in alcohol abuse. Um, you know, in the example you gave, but it's not enough for me. You've got to work on the context of leadership, the context of the cultural environment, you know, the context of the community that that um, that individual lives in. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the way that I've kind of framed it is, you know, eight, eight billion self-aware people don't make a better world. <laughs> and, and it's kind of this idea that what we're teaching people again, talking of kind of the societal impact that we have and the social conditioning, what we're teaching people right now is that if you're just walking down the street, 
if you feel like crossing the road at any given point, you can just cross the road. But there's a social element right there. There are rules of the road. There are other people on the road. There are places to cross the road that are designated for you. And it doesn't, you know, at, at some point, the individual runs into the society. Yeah. And, and so we need to address both of those as some semblance of holistic thinking. Yeah. And, and also the individual walking down the street has always existed in a cultural context in a social right. context, right? Right. From being born, <laughs> you, you, everything that happens to you is in relation to other people and to your environment. So it's, it's kind of, I understand its benefit and why it came about, but I, I just find it too narrow to think like that. And that's why um, when we look at social psychology or sociology, or when we look at anthropology or, or the other disciplines all mixed in, we get somewhere closer to an idea about life and who we are in life. Whereas if we just take one strand, you know, it's, um, it's too narrow. It's not, as you say, you can, you can develop a, a, a massive amount of self-awareness and never think about the other in, in any depth. And that's, that's not going to be enough to enrich your life or anyone else's. Mm -hmm. I want to kind of go far and wide in this conversation. I want to talk to you obviously about fear and specifically fear in coaching. And we'll, we'll revisit this topic in that what that does to playing groups and individuals. I also want to talk to you about heroes, mm -hmm. but because of how many coaches listen to this show, whether it be technical coaches, whether it be strength and conditioning coaches, I want to talk about your concept of winning deep. Mm -hmm. Can you just explain winning shallow and yeah. winning deep? Sure thing. For me, winning shallow is where the simplest way to describe it is where there is a kind of a, a sense of winning to avoid loss, right? A sense of urgent desperate need to winning uh, that is generally focused on outcome. And so much of our narrative in sport has got that, that associated with it, right? Winning shallow is where you feel like if you don't win, something of your worth is going to be lost. Something of your, um, your value, something of you as a person is going to be lost, which is different to just, you know, hating losing, <laughs> Winning deep, on the other hand, is where you win to test what you've got. And it's not necessarily based in comparison to the other, as in rivalry or, you know, um, a sense that you're not going to be good enough if you don't win. You win to test your mettle. You win for the spirit of the contest. You win collectively. That's often a, a huge part of winning deep. Um, and, and there's just joy in it. You're present for your success, right? You can, so many, so many times in winning, um, people get to the end of the win. They actually have the trophy in their hand or the medal around their neck and they feel, what they feel is relief rather than joy, right? So winning deep is where you've been present enough in the process of winning that you feel it, right? You can experience your success in its entirety as a whole thing rather than just feel relief thrill move on to the next contest you know and that's where i, I feel winning shallow is this sort of 
never ending. I, I hate it where I see in a, a change room, you know, there is no finish line. I think, ah, oh, that's such a bad mentality to imbue in people because the idea is it, it's not the same as persistence or don't quit. It's the idea that you will never get that feeling of fulfillment. And that's all wrong in our winning, winning mentality. So winning shallow sits on the side of all of that outcome, never, no, no finish line, urgent, desperate, can't feel. And winning deep is much more present, joyful, whole, rich, got the struggle in it, got the blood, sweat and tears in it, but you were there for it. <laughs> and it had more elements to it than the scoreboard. This strikes me as such an incredible concept because to tie it back to what we were just talking about, I feel like there's still this social conditioning element to how well all of the winning shallow has persisted and how despite changes in our our general kind of social outlook on life and what's important and mental health and all these things, we still keep hiring people and drafting people and emphasizing the winning and winners and, you know, those people that, you know, say the, the really cool things about beating others and about dominating and all of those kind of hyper-masculine things. And so it mm -hmm. strikes me that we're in this really bizarre world at the moment where we're encouraging one thing, but then we're not actually showing anyone that we're not actually giving any incentives to win deep. And, and you know, that I, I totally agree. And I, I think that the, um, the narrative around it, you know, we're all run by stories and the stories around winning are stories that just haven't been challenged or updated for a long time. And they've got fear right in the middle of them. Fear of not being good enough is right in the middle of a lot of those stories. And as you say, hyper-masculinity. And um, for me, they just rob us. <laughs> they rob people of the, the possibility of that journey. And, and if you actually sit down with people and talk about at the, you know, at stumps at the end of the day and talk to them about what was really the richest thing in their journey. There's not that many of them talk about the scoreboard wins. Mm. They talk about the relationships. They talk about being more than they thought they could be. They talk about, um, you know, the, the kind of journeys and the struggles and the um, successes in a broader sense. And they also talk about friendship and collegiality, mateship, um, you know, what it was to be in that team at that moment in time. And um, I, you don't, I, I think that that's sort of like a really scripted, the idea of beating the other dominant, you know, the goat, all of that is, is really sort of scripted. And I, my view is that most people, when you get under the surface, however many athletes across disciplines that I've had the privilege of sitting down and talking with personally, underneath all that, that's not it. That's not it. That's a thrill. That's awesome. You know, who wouldn't want those accolades? We all love winning. But what kind of winning are you doing? You know, and, and really, when it comes down to it, was it about dominating that other person? Was it about 
um, glory. <laughs> and so, so many of our sports stories are around that. I, I find them laced with damage, actually. As you were talking there, I, I was told recently, and I haven't validated this, but I think it's St Kilda don't have a premiership reunion. They The team that made the grand final and lost, they still have reunions and they're really just celebrating the team that they had and the the journey that they were on and they didn't reach the ultimate goal but they were just so in love with each other and just had such a great bond that they still get together and it's the first example that I've heard of that particularly in Australian sport where to your point the only thing that ever goes up on the wall is the ultimate successes and everything else is viewed as a failure yeah, And it was just a really cool example that I heard. And again, I, I actually don't know if it occurred, but a friend told me that they get together still. I think that's magnificent. Yeah. How, yeah, too. How, do we, how do we expedite that? How do we get that idea of winning deep from the, the reflections, the autobiographies at the end of the career where it is you talk about the journeys that you've been on with all these great people. Why does it have to be stuck at the end of the career in reflection? Why can't we do it now in the middle of the journey? There's a challenge right there. We can. And I think your audience as coaches actually have the key in their hand here because, um, you know, so much of it is about permission right sport one of the other things that we see a lot in male team sport is hierarchy and power and the big dog at the top and you know there's a lot of that that's wonderful around respect and admiration but there's also a lot of power in that and I think when those people who have the power give permission for the story to be enjoyed a different way told a different way for different things to be part of success we really start to expedite it. And you can see examples of that across sport, many more still in the old school, but I do think you can see examples of it, you know? So where I think of Steve Kerr and Golden State Warriors, you know, their values include joy, <laughs> right? And so when they review at the end of, uh, of a season, they talk about how they did against their values, right? They become the stories. They become the stories that run them. It's self-perpetuating. If the story becomes failure, fear, not good enough, didn't make it or do better, and that's the only story. It's a really important point here, Cody. It's a really important difference. When we talk about winning deep, we're not talking about giving up winning. We all love winning. It's like, what kind of winning? You still want the, you still want the premiership. You still want the flag, right? It's not that. It's like, what is the journey to get there? And how do you not lose yourself on the way and lose all the good stuff that is actually the legacy of a sports career? You know, so, so I really think a lot of the answer is in permission and in the kind of stories that get told at ground level um, and that they become, you know, they also become the, the statues around the G. It's not, it's, it's not just... It's not just physical capability and scoreboard. This is a great segue, actually. The example I want to use here, because I, I wrote about it in the tough stuff, is Nathan Buckley, coached Collingwood for, for 10 years. And I wrote about his process of, of going from uh, kind of clutching onto absolutely everything 
uh, around the club, including who was folding the towels in the locker room, to this magnificent press conference that he did where he stopped a press conference to say, to address a, a newspaper article about his career and essentially him being empty unless he coached a premiership with Collingwood and said, I, I refuse that. And he actually took back control of his identity from the media narrative. What a stand to make from someone in a multi-billion dollar industry that's driven by winning, that all the narratives are about you either win the ultimate prize or nothing, to say, I refuse that for me personally and I also refuse that because I won't pass those lessons on to the players that I work with. Mm. I haven't seen that anywhere else. Someone take a stand like that. Yeah, that's that, that to me is courage, but it's also... Um, a description of his wholeness, right? So who is to say, who from the outside is to say what is full and what is empty in another person, right? It's, it's just one aspect. And, and, you know, we create these stories around like devastation and I'm gutted and it was, you know, and you are, of course, in the moment, but that doesn't mean you are, dissolved as a human being because ideally for any person coach or athlete um, there is so much more substance in them than than just that moment but we build so much towards these pinnacle moments these peaks these you know windows of opportunity that you know when we do that that's that's for a start if you've got to have your radar up when you're doing that to say how how whole am I how much attention am I putting to this? How much am I giving up in every other aspect of my identity to do this? And you've also got to get rid of the myth that giving up everything and sacrificing your whole being to win a flag is going to actually get you there. <laughs> it's, it, it, you know, it's not, is not what happens. And it's especially never going to be what happens with young people from now, the generation the Gen Z and beyond, you know, are just very different creatures to baby boomers. And they're just not going to be like that, right? So it, that, that idea that giving up all of yourself, you know, um, to the sacrifice of winning and every relationship has to be on the back burner, every aspect of your identity has to be completely wedded into that. That is not what the science says or the psychology um, says, and it's actually not what feels right. So the people who can endure, um, the people who can keep their joy, they have a broader identity that cannot possibly be dissolved or they cannot possibly be an empty vessel because of a loss. They might have a couple of really crap days, weeks, months, but that's it. Like if you... If you feel like an empty vessel after that, well, you have not been filling your cup from the right places. Yeah. And it also leads on to this idea of heroes and, and heroism and following those people that haven't necessarily achieved what we've asked of them in the past, but have just been kind of bastions of this way of, of living their life and that they are full and people will follow them now 
know, we don't necessarily need the, the, you know, the, the NBA champion to be the ultimate hero. Yeah, I agree. And, and um, I think it's also really culturally nuanced. Like I, I would love to see more work um, about what is the right Australian archetype of success, you know, rather than the Kobe Bryant Americanized, you know, or, or Michael Jordan or, you know, pick somebody who, who sort of really embodied that sacrificial hero narrative. What does that mean in Australia? What does that mean in AFL? you know, or Australian cricket, for example, because it is nuanced. And I think it's really important to keep that as part of, of the story of, you know, what really feels right and rich and fulfilling here. Um, and, and a bit more bold, braver about doing it the right way for you, rather than, you know, just taking on a, um, a cut and paste job from somewhere else. Um, that is maybe commercially more successful or bigger or more glamorous or a, a more mature entertainment product, right? You know, I, I think that's really an important point. And, and to, your, I, to your sort of point about heroes, right? I get, um, I take a lot of my deep and meaningful thinking from, um, you know, I'm into narratives and stories and I take a lot from myth. Um, and all of the different kind of myths and stories that are presented to us through all sorts of places, all sorts of realms and different disciplines. You know, in the story, if I, if I go back to sort of like the Greek mythology, the story of the hero is a pretty rubbish story. <laughs> it's actually a story of descent, not ascent. It's not a story of making it. It's a story of burden and sacrifice I think it's really worth thinking about it, the way that we uh, lord heroes and glory. You know, what sacrifices had to be made for that, for that to be real? And, um, yeah, I, I just think we have a lot more uh, exploration to do around heroes and glory because it's, it kind of uh, puts people in a particular position that's full of fear and the potential for loss, and it's... I find it a bit dehumanizing. I've spoke to many athletes at all sorts of levels who are, you know, incredible human beings who have achieved what other people would think were the, you know, was the absolute um, big ticket. And um, they've just been full of fear because then how are they allowed to be human? Because they've been, they've been made into a hero archetype. That's a, a wonderful segue again, actually, because I wanted to bring up a quote from Fear Less, your book. And this will take us into that idea of fear in coaching and the use of fear as well. There's, there's two sides to this, really. There's the, the fear that lives within the coach and then there's the fear that's used on the players. The quote is, manipulating with fear is a lazy way to motivate. I can't see any results that couldn't be achieved with better skills and more care. Yep. Firstly, I love that quote and I'm going to tweet the heck out of that after this show. <laughs> but, but, but let's explore that a little bit because I am 1000% on board with this in that I actually think the coaches need to come to the party on this not the other way around. 
in that we need to accept that uh, one, fear works and there needs to be an acceptance of that, but it works in the short term and increasingly it's less and less sustainable. Yeah. Fear, um, fear does work. Fear definitely works at three quarters time. You know, when you need a rise <laughs> out of somebody and, you know, uh, a, a realignment of short-term focus, then as you would say in Australia, putting a rocket up somebody is very effect- can be very effective. However, <laughs> it doesn't work for very long you know, in terms of motivation. It's, very, it's a very short-term tool. Um, and I mm-hmm. think the same can be achieved with authority and respect, which don't have the same tone as fear, right? We need authority and respect. Um, the coach needs authority and respect. It's different to fear. Fear has got a tone of shame and negativity to it, which is not valuable in any way. Um, but more broadly, the coach has got to ask, what at what cost, right? So if everybody's eyes down and... And, you know, the coach walks through the club and um, people bristle in some way. Um, what is the cost of that to how much risk they will take? If what you're looking for is a completely compliant group who will execute every word you say, everything you want them to do, well, then you'll probably get it through fear and they might not have a great experience other than maybe they'll win and maybe they'll win shallow, um, but will they take the risk when you're not on the you're not on the field of play with them? If you're the coach, right? You're up in the box. You need them to make their own choices once the game's in flow. You need them to read the play and feel the permission and freedom to do what their talent and their experience can do. If they're fearful, they're going to pull back on that even if it's just a few steps or a a hesitation of a second or two. And I also think, Cody, that coaches who use fear probably need to look at whether they have some insecurity themselves. You know, what is it that they might have to unlearn to allow them to step further into their potential? I'll indulge you in some wordplay just to kind of reinforce a couple of the things that you've said there. There's a fine line between a culture and a cult. And to what you're talking about in terms of kind of the fear driving the behavior and the stripping away the creativity and essentially stripping away the game and the game in its purest form. We see this in soccer all the time is that we don't actually give the players the tools we give them the athletic tools but we don't give them the mental tools to be able to create the game while they're out there we say you run here and you do this action at the end of that run that is closer to cult than culture for me Mm -hmm. that is saying i'm going to tell you what to do and you are going to listen because i have authority over you and that's that's a really small view of coaching potential and then the second piece of wordplay that i'll use here as well is coachability gets pushed onto the players you need to be coachable 
but when you split the word in half, the words are coach and ability. <laughs> yeah. And so, again, it implies that it is our ability. And so for me to have coach ability, the question becomes, do I have the sense of identity and the strength of identity and belief in myself to be able to coach different people in different ways? Mm-hmm. And I think we have both of those two things backwards. I think most of us are kind of closer to cult. You go and do this. You will believe this. These are your values. And then secondly, (laughs) poor players having coachability put entirely onto them when they're looking to a leader to say, can you help me get better at what it is I do? I love those. They're they're such great re visioning of those those bits of language I, I really like that and I would add that you know um, when you talk about coachability um, and and the, how able the coach is you know trust is a big thing like tr- but I don't mean having the trust of others alone I mean trusting yourself um, you know and being willing to this is where vulnerability is such a big deal you know being willing to actually show up and trust the process, trust what you know, trust your intention, trust your own capability without, you know, can you show up and not have to be the expert on all things at all times? Because if you show up and you are the expert at all things on all times, you're faking it, (laughs) right? So, you know, can you trust yourself a bit more and let go of that, surrender some of that? And, And the strength of doing that is profound. But I, I think also, you know, I just want to circle back to the idea of authority to you do not have to give away your authority. And I think there's so much more to explore in that word and that um, concept of like, how am I, if, can, if, if, you know, 44 sets of eyes look to me in, you know, in the, um, in the sort of week to week in the club and, and um, you know, expect me to have the answer, you know, or, or look to me to be the leader. That's all right. That is mm. the job. Authority is a role, not just a persona. Mm. Um, and, you know, you can embody vulnerability and still have authority. Um, I think Dimmer does that really well. So, you know, that's, that's the stuff I think coaches, um, there's room for coaches to really explore that. Um, and really think about what it is that gives them authority. Ask the group what gives them authority. You know, respect, trust, care, all come into that. And, um, you know, being seen to do things that help the group, being seen to do things that get them a win, right? That's all authority. It's very, very different to leading with fear, but I think we've kind of just hardened or calcified this idea of, you know, what leadership or what, what authority has to look like. And it's way too rigid and, and not human enough. And coaches have got more in them um, to bring to the party than that if they can just surrender a bit of that fear of how they'll be seen as um, not the expert. What I would love to see would be coaches who are willing to do that without having one. And so that's why I think Nathan Buckley is a great example, but also 
one of the things that came out of COVID was I loved listening to Steve Kerr and Pete Carroll on their podcast. Mm. What a magnificent gift to the world in a, in a terrible time just to hear from them. But the reason they get to do that is because they have won the ultimate prize. So they have some sort of sense of security. But what I think happens is a lot of coaches at the top level come into their career wanting to be like that. But then once they get the job, they're so fearful of losing it that they actually renege on their, a lot of their great ideas, a lot of their great innovations, the fear comes back and they don't actually, or they aren't able to be themselves because they feel like they have to have won first to deserve it. You know, I, I would add, I'm sure you've had many of these conversations too, Cody, but you know, the ones who have all the trophies in the cabinet don't always get rid of the fear. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I think that the, perhaps the most salient piece of that is the ability to understand that fear will be present. We need it. It's useful. It's natural. But can you have you got your hand on the dial of how loud it is in your life and can you recognize when it's actually it, it you know it's in control and you're not um or you're giving too much over to it you know that that's the thing because even the maybe not Steve Kerr and Pete Carroll in in that particular context but I think that they would both have come with a particular personality and start. Look at Steve Kerr as a player. He was always that one who would still, he made the very best of himself. He would still get out there persistently despite um, setbacks. And I, I have a feeling that with him, he understood that elite performance was, to him, was the, like the very best expression of what talent and gifts he had. It wasn't actually just about an outcome. I think he sort of turned up with that as when he started coaching, you know, he's, he's um, pretty wonderful as a case study in that respect, but this is why I, I bang on about vulnerability, because if you can feel that fear, recognize it and go, right, that needs to turn down because it's actually going to get in my way, um, both performance wise, but it, it will also steal my joy is a thief. Um, and it was, and it's an energy that is exchanged in the group rapidly, and everyone else will start feeling it pretty quickly. How am I going to turn it down? Right, that's that's the piece. It's not about getting rid of fear and putting the lid on it and s- stuffing it away and being bulletproof. And that's nonsense. It's okay. It's going to show up. Oh, it's here this morning. Right. Okay. What am I going to do about it? Turn it down. And and you've got you know, in the book, I talk about in the moment fear, which is the, you know, go around the corner too quick, prickle of adrenaline, kind of right there, take a pe- taking a penalty, big moment kind of fear. And the techniques are useful for dealing with that. And then not good enough fear, which is much sneakier, it disguises itself. And it's much more pervasive and strangling. And what I would like to invite Um, people especially coaches and players to do is really have a look really have a good look they're not good enough fear and go on a journey to change that story because that's the one that unravels us big time and 
to add on to your addition, I would also say that that not good enough fear isn't just in a silo of your sporting endeavors. No. I, I talk in the tough stuff about my fear of my friends not actually liking me unless I was drunk. Right. Now, the knock on effect to my coaching of that realization has been astronomical because it that's actually closer to the root than just whether we perform on Saturdays or whether we perform at this yeah. tournament. Yeah, 100%. You know, and, and the, um, the recognition of it is one thing, right? You talk about the knock-on effect. The recognition of it is sometimes shocking and it's like the, the courage to stay there a little while and go, all right, let me have a look at actually how this shows up in my life and to face it. You know, what does it cost me? What does it cost me as a coach? You know, um, what if, I, if I'm always wearing that archetype, I'm not allowed really to be anybody else. I have to close down other aspects of myself. You know, um, what, so facing what that costs you and then replacing it. So you have to stay much longer with the uncomfortable bit than you might prefer. When we feel fear, it's, it's really horrible. You want to you fix it. You want to turn it down and move on quickly but when it's not good enough fear just staying that little bit longer to sort of say what really is that about you know ladder down a few layers and then face what that costs you in opportunity or in lost opportunity or in um you know uh things not done well and then then think about what you want to do about it so it's you know, I appreciate that example because it's, it's exactly the what I'm talking about in the book. Yeah, I think you use the term, well, you, you talk about fear, you know, keeping us stuck in, in certain thoughts. So, for instance, that thought, oh, my friends, and, and basically that becomes, well, nobody likes me you know, unless I'm drunk. Um, so my, my personality is is stuck in drinking but you talk about how it stops us from accessing our better intelligence and seeing opportunities. <laughs> and the follow-on line is fear in effect makes us stupid. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what you're talking about in that underneath all of that is this better intelligence, this uh, clarity, you know, the richness of what a coach can yeah. actually do. It's all kind of buried in underneath that. And once you get access to it, it comes out like oil out of the ground. Mm -hmm, definitely and if you if you think just in terms of like the way that the mind works we have somewhere between 60 and 80,000 thoughts a day and the majority of them are negative and repetitive so if 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 you get a like a slither of fear in there it's gonna recycle it is going to perpetuate it will be really sticky compared to other kind of thoughts like (laughs) self-belief you know or, or or some kind of good personal feedback to self it's, um, you know, it's sticky and it, it, it really, that's why it really has to be intentional to see it and to decide what you're going to do with it. Fear won't go away on its own. Fear won't just, I mean, you know, the example I gave before of going around the corner too quickly and getting an adrenaline prick, that, that will go away quickly. Um, but not good enough fear will not. You have to intervene. It, it won't do you a favor 
So, you know, you have to be proactive about it. And, but as you quite rightly say, the, the um, rich groundswell of possibility that is at the other side of not good enough fear is just so, um, from a performance perspective, it's just so massive if you can access that. Uh, you know, just that basic question, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Um, if, if you change that in, in the example you gave, what would you do if you weren't afraid of what people thought? Mm-hmm. You know, what would you do if you didn't think there was a time frame on it? They're really interesting uh, ways of kind of encouraging yourself to just take one more step. But, you, but it's a, re- a really important point that not good enough fear will not go away unless you intervene. And then let's come full circle with this. So, you know, we've talked about coaches in particular and and their behavior and and their self-reflection and and tactics, but there is still this environmental element. And this is where you find yourself doing a lot of work is actually addressing the, the broader, like organizational environment and dynamic to also help facilitate effective coaching, effective teamwork. And so, you know, coaches that feel stuck and feel like maybe they're doing some of this work, but the environment isn't supporting them, how can they deal with some of those challenges? Yeah, that's a, a great question. I, th- I think that there is some interesting options here. In some environments where the coach is also the key uh, engineer of the environment or all of the systems so they're not sort of a, a pure coach they're also running the show you know that's um, that can be really tricky to achieve but I think it starts with deciding what you would like it to look like collectively like having conversations with the assistants and the you know the leadership of the organization and even even sort of senior players to say, what would we like this to look like as an organization? And then you take a step back and say, culturally, I mean, and then you take a step back and say, what processes, systems, you know, ways of getting things done enable that? Because usually people jump straight to behaviors, but there's a piece in the middle. You know, if you, um, if you want a culture of trust and a culture of joy, then if you have a system of finding somebody for being five minutes late, you're probably going in the wrong direction, right? So what are the systems, processes, and ways of getting things done that enable that culture we say we want? And then what are the kinds of behaviors, um, I call them cultural competencies, that we can develop um, that help? So, you know, things like how do we set standards and accountabilities and shake hands on it? You know, how do we have a spirit of contribution? How do we have a sense of shared purpose that's not just a goal? There's a difference between purpose and goals. You know, how do we keep an energy of well-being or thriving in the joint? And then do our capacity and our capability match the task at hand? Or are we asking people to do more than they actually can? And that's staff and players. And what, what can we do about that? You know, so there's a set of cultural competencies that I think really help you create the map, if you like. But it definitely starts with that collective conversation of what, let's name it. Let's, let's just, doesn't have to be eloquent, just name the kind of culture 
that would feel right. And as I said before, it's going to be personal. It's going to be, you know, for this club, this team, this club, this um, country, this context, not cut and paste from Atlanta Falcons or whoever else you want to look at on whatever day. It's, it's, I think, the time that goes into really deciding and then building a map. And then you've got to recognize, too, that it's, it's you know, this is slow work. Culture yeah. is slow work, not quick work. It's not technique. This is art and science, you know, and you've got to hold firm. You've got to, you've got to have um, a bit of steel um, about the way, you know, in the way that you go about it. It really requires resilience and persistence to stick with this when fear shows up or when criticism shows up or, you know, in the example you gave before in the, the Bucks press conference, you know, when somebody's got a really contrary opinion and you just really want it all to go away. <laughs> it, it, but that linking arms to start with across groups, across coaching players and um, senior staff and, you know, where it's viable even your broadest stakeholders, you know, I, I think about Peggy at Richmond and how collective the decision-making was in the early days about what they wanted it to look like, what they thought would feel right and, and build the map from there. You know, it's, it's actually not rocket science. It's just really tenacious work. That idea of linking arms, I think, is so important. And the earlier, the better. Like, I, I get asked to help coaches prepare for interviews quite regularly and part of that is what should I ask and my advice is often exactly what you've said well ask about what happens when we're losing yeah. when we if I lose three in a row what happens are you as the owner president CEO gonna come down to the locker room and help or are you gonna kind of sit on the other side of the fence and uh, you know and so actually naming and talking about and identifying what that feels like during success, during meandering, during losing, I think is a much more holistic picture of what we're going to go through anyway. Yeah. And it feels a little bit like dating. Like if, if you just want to lie to each other, um, you know, over Tinder, you know, I'm, I'm six foot seven and um, you know, my biceps are really big and then you show up to the date and you're five foot nine and haven't lifted a weight, <laughs> you're, going to, you're going to know that you were lying to each other straight off the bat. And I feel like a lot of coaches get themselves into that situation because of the fear in the interview of not asking those kind of questions and naming those kind of uh, circumstances. Yeah. And that it goes back to sort of some of the earlier conversations today, Cody, of like, willingness to show up authentically without being heroic, without having all of the boxes ticked that you imagine somebody else might think it looks like. Because the reality is we trust the authentic person in front of us so much more than the glorious person when it comes down to it. You know, and, and I, I just think show up as you. It's your very best option um, to you know, to make the kind of connections that it'll take to, you know, to work together with people. And you don't always get, um, you know, there's a lot of power intelligence that's required in coaching, a lot of understanding of how power dynamics work. But, you know, my challenge is always, do you have to feel like you're playing the game or can you find a way of being 
that can see the game that's been played and not lose yourself to it? You know, can you hold your feet while power intelligence games are being played around you, you know, if you're in that environment? And that will give you a stronger result. And, you know, result in its broadest sense. I'm not just talking about scoreboard again. I'm talking about that sense yeah. of having one, winning deep. Yeah. And that's just it. You know, we, we so easily talk about good jobs and bad jobs in coaching and you know, clubs that are a mess. And it's actually not about that. It's to your point about seeing it for what it is and still opting in. Yeah. It could be a really tough you know, resources are, are low, team not performing, that can still be a good job. Yep. It, it can be very fulfilling. You can, to your point, like win deep. You can move the needle in every element, but you have to first see it for what it really is rather than this rose-coloured glasses mm-hmm. idea because that's, yeah, you're going to go down the wrong path straight away with that. Yeah. Or, or you might have an early honeymoon with it, but then, you yeah. know, if there's, if there's some uh, fake is too strong a word, but if there's, if there's too much sort of PR in it or manipulation of the story, as you said in, the, in your example of dating, you know, is it, you know, it's going to come to the surface. It's just when, when will you um, get to it is the question. So I, I just think that, you know, the, the genuine sort of authenticity and courage to show up as you is probably the strongest thing you can do. And if, and if, you know, that doesn't get you through the selection round, um, then, you know, it's, it's easy for me to say sitting here, isn't it? But then that's not it. (laughs) You didn't want that job. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) It was going to bite you in the bum in six months anyway. You know, that's, that's not it. Um, and you probably learned something good from it too. I've, I recently helped a, another coach um, prepare for a, uh, a senior coach interview in AFL. And it's like, you know, that, uh, that ability to just show up as you are and actually say it as you see it really is very um, helpful in the journey. So it might not get you that job, but it's very helpful in the journey when it comes down to it. All right. The big question, Pippa. Yeah. What, what have you found recently? And I'm curious about what's on Danish Netflix, by the way. What have you <laughs> kind of randomly stumbled on a, a Wikipedia hole, a, a show on Netflix, a book, something that is kind of outside of your realm that might be new that maybe you didn't think I would be ever interested in this? Mm. Actually, something I've read recently which really grabbed me was um, uh, a book called The Spirit of the Game by um, a Native American Indian man called um, Dr. Gregory Cahete. And he talks about the way that, I, I don't even think it's in print anymore, but I got an old copy. And he talks about the, the way that sport in the um, American Indian context is seen and how it's used as a rite of passage for young people, particularly young men, um, and as part of their sort of identity formation and how they, you know, the way that their feet touch the earth becomes part of their humanity, if you like, 
it was kind of it's kind of out there but I really enjoyed it to thinking about you know a very different worldview of what's the point of sport than than the yeah. ones that we we think about where you read a I just really don't read them very often the sort of biographies and the you know the hero stuff as we talked about but that idea that the point of sport is the best possible expression of ourselves and it's a rite of passage. It's just a rite of passage to becoming whole. They talk about the journey to completeness. I think sport can be just such a massive part of our journey to completeness. So I really love that book. That's that's grabbed me lately. Yeah. Feels and timely. Bridgerton, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. That kind of idea feels timely given, you know, Olympics and, and obviously a lot of the Western world following England's journey in, uh, in soccer, men's soccer, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There seems to be a lot of storylines around what you're talking about there in that journey. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I just, I really hope that's the way um, sport goes from here. Uh, yeah. You know, maybe it'll be a, a long journey, but I, I really hope it goes that way and, and further away from the sort of, Naomi Osaka or Simone Biles kind of commentary that we're seeing, you know, rise to the surface. Some of the ugliness around that is, mm. is it's rubbish and it's old school and it's time to move on. Agree wholeheartedly. Where can people find your books and you and the work that you're doing? Yep. Um, my books are all on Amazon or your um, local independent bookseller in Australia um, and beyond. Um, and I'm currently working with Right to Dream Group, which is just www.righttodream.com. Um, I'm based in Copenhagen, but uh, we're building in Egypt, a new academy, and we're in Ghana as well, and I'm about to go to the US. So lots of stuff happening at Right to Dream, which is super exciting. And you can find me on Instagram as well at, at Pippa Grange. Awesome. Thank you so much, Pippa. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I knew I would. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. So appreciate you making the, the time for the chat today and um, for passing on your knowledge. I know it's going to be extraordinarily helpful for a lot of the coaches and just people that listen in. Thanks so much, Cody. It's, it's lovely to talk to you too. And I really appreciate the work you're doing. Um, you know, long may it last. And um, yeah, I look forward to connecting again soon. Thanks, Pippa. Hey, thanks for listening all the way to the end. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you'd like to get in touch with me about anything you've heard on the show, head to codyroyal.com. And just a quick reminder, both mine and Pippa's books are available to purchase globally on Amazon.